Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of something called telekinesis? I had heard the term, but really didn't know what it was. Well, basically, it's how our minds impact the physical world. Our guest today is Sean McNamara, and he has an incredible story that all started with his fear of dying. So let me tell you a little bit about my new friend, Sean. He teaches and practices meditation in Denver, Colorado, and makes his living as a realtor. In 2014, after a shared death experience, SDE, and a series of -of out-of-body experiences, he became more confident than ever in the idea that we don't die when our physical bodies do. Struggling to share his knowledge with others, he decided to explore telekinesis to show that we are non-physical beings. He has a very cool video on his website, mindpossible.com, and free telekinesis training to help all of us on our individual paths of consciousness exploration. With all that being said, Sean McNamara, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Oh, thank you, Sandra. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I'm happy to be talking to you too. When I you sent me your video, I was just so engaged and you just left me so in awe, like, oh my God, that's possible. So I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. So how's how's things in Denver this morning? Uh Denver's great. It's a warm day. Who knows what it'll be tomorrow? The weather's just crazy right now, going from hot to cold. Oh, yeah, it is but, um, crazy. And for our listener, yeah. we are recording this um, actually early April in 2016, and um, in the morning, obviously. And I'm in Massachusetts, and Sean's in Colorado. So mm-hmm. through the magic of technology, we get to connect right now. Yeah, I feel so blessed about the technology. I mean, the reason why I wanted to meet with you and talk to you and how I knew about you was because of watching your video, We Don't Die. And it was so illuminating because you explored things like electronic voice phenomena and dowsing. And you talked about mediumship and connecting with spirit in various ways. And that really inspired me. And I think without technology or the internet, none of this would be possible, but we're all learning so much so quickly because of it. We're all sharing so much from different perspectives and different cultures and different abilities that people have. It's just a blessing. Yeah, it's and it's fun. It really is. Yeah. It is fun. So how about a little bit about you? I mean, you grew up in, uh, are you a Colorado person originally? Uh, No, I have a a strange, well, a unique background. I was born in Toledo, but my dad worked for an insurance company that was um, international. So we were transferred a lot growing up. I spent most of my youth in the Philippines. I was in Hong Kong for a couple of years, Brazil for a couple of years. And then I moved to Denver my senior year of high school, which is probably the worst time a guy could move to a new school. Yeah, of course. You know, senior year. And um, during those growing up years, we traveled to to different countries. Uh, We visited various parts of Europe and Asia. So I was exposed to a lot of different cultures and and religions that way. Which is a good thing for a kid. Really good thing. And then I know you have your day job in uh, being a realtor. Mm -hmm. But can you share a little bit about what got you into what you're doing now? Um, Because I... I think maybe I've heard of a shared death experience, SDE, but normally we're talking about NDEs, near-death experiences, and I'm like, hmm, this sounds like a very interesting story. Mm-hmm, sure. And to, to tell her right, I have to just go back to my, when I was seven years old, I had an emergency appendectomy, and I, you know, there, it was a couple of days of extreme pain as a boy, not knowing what was going on, and of course... We, I was rushed to the hospital and had my appendix taken out. But that was the first time I even thought about the notion of death, you know, with any any real consideration that well, what is death and what is pain, <laughs> extreme pain, and that one can lead to the other. And I think I developed a really deep-seated sense of anxiety uh, about my future, about future pain or future death, just knowing that I 
uh, come so close. And then um, in my teen years, I had come across a book about out-of-body experiences. Wow. And and I, I tried to do some of those practices. I got maybe a couple books. I never had too much, you know, I didn't have any success with it. I, I didn't have any really, any kind of contemplative practice. So I didn't know how to be with my body or how to be with my mind. And so at the end of that time, it was really just me laying in bed at night, listening to Pink Floyd's Learning to Fly. And <laughs> right, trying to fly, yeah. Yeah, just hearing the inspiring chills of that song and other songs like it and feeling strange and, and certainly nice sensations in bed, but nothing more happened than that. And then as I got older in, in high school and college, I developed a lump in my chest I didn't know what it was, but, you know, as it is for everyone, you go to the doctor and then there's a biopsy and there's that period of time where you're waiting for the results. <laughs> and again, we start to wonder, is this, is this it? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> is this the end of the road already? And there's that, that silent terror underneath the surface. And then I also ended up having heart surgery after college. Wow. Um, I had a Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which really just... It's an issue with the nervous system in the heart, and they had to go in and cauterize a nerve ending in my heart. But heart surgery is heart surgery, mm-hmm. no matter how simple they, they might think it is these days. And again, I had that question of, is this is this the end of the road for me, and what's on the other side? And by this time, I had been meditating for a year, I believe. Yeah, I'd started going to one of the local Buddhist centers here in Denver, mm-hmm and learned about meditation. And part of why I decided to start meditating was because uh, I wanted to look into reality a little more, and I needed a way to do that. And though I had grown up Catholic, it's just I know there are different forms of, of practice in the Catholic Church, and diff- different people practice differently. And I just didn't really acquire the skills to look inwardly through the way I was brought up in that tradition. Yeah. So I looked at Buddhism, and of course that's because I had lived in Asia, and I, I just knew what Buddhism was to some right. degree. So I wanted a way to look into reality, and at that point, um, at least meditation had helped me work with anxiety. So I thought, well, I'm about to have heart surgery, and I was sitting there, on my on the hospital bed before they wheeled me into the room and I was sitting on the bed trying to meditate and by this point I'd heard about some of the more advanced practices that in Tibetan Buddhism are available for you know transferring your consciousness as you're dying <laughs> and I thought wow. well if I could at least just try and hold on to my awareness or try and be present as I'm going under the anesthesia and having the surgery, maybe I can show myself that there is some sort of continuity. And I know there's so many scientific reasons why that wouldn't validate anything because my brain would be functioning during the surgery and, and all that. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, it was a good experiment. I thought if I could still be conscious going through this process and maybe all the meditation work I'd done would help then I'd have something to hold on to, something to give me some encouragement and probably wipe out a lot of anxiety. Right. So the time came to go into the operating room and they inserted the needle in my arm to put me to sleep. And they said, count backwards from 100 to 1. And I thought, here it goes. I'm going to maintain my awareness as I go down. And I counted 100, 99, 98. And I was out like a light. Wow. It didn't work at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and then I opened my eyes and it was hours later and the surgery was complete and I was alive again and I was happy to be alive. And I was so frustrated that my experiment didn't work Right. and that I, I, I didn't, I didn't get the information I was looking for, but if I had died, I would have you know, at that point I thought I would have been in blackness and that, mm-hmm. that it is that sort of nihilistic view of death, that there's nothing on the other side. Mm-hmm. So I continued my meditation practice, and I think it was really a really big expectation to put on myself that after just one year of meditating a little bit that I would be able to do this. So I thought, I just need more training and more, more practice time. And so I continued meditating for 14 or 15 years after that. And 
all I really got to was that meditation at that point was great for being with the anxiety, great for being with not knowing what happens next. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lot of what the mindfulness movement is about, is about being in the present, not worrying about what's happening next. Yes. But I'm a stubborn guy, and it, that just wasn't good enough for me. Okay. <laughs> and I really needed something else. I really wanted to look further. I did need to inquire about the next moment. I did need to find out what happens on the other side, if there is another side. Right. And it, I don't know why this happened or how this happened, but this movie came into my mind. It was Shirley MacLaine's Out on a Limb. Okay. That had come out as a television series in the 1980s, where she talks about her uh, experience with new age ideas. She goes to South America. She makes contact with uh, extraterrestrial entities. She has an out of body experience in a, one of the hot springs there in South America. She meets with a medium. And it, actually, as I'm describing her video, it reminds me of your video, We Don't Die. You know, you're both explorers and having similar experiences. And, and I, I just found this video on the Internet. And at that scene of watching her float out of her body in the hot spring, just with some basic meditation instructions that her companion had given her, mm-hmm. re-inspired me. And I thought, look, I've been meditating for a few more years. I... I know how to be with myself more than I did when I was a teenager. Why not see if I could do the out-of-body experience again? Yes. And when I was a teenager, I didn't really know of or use the Internet. I'm sure it existed, but it just wasn't in my reality yet. But now I had the Internet, and I found books that were much better written than when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot more research behind them, and were just easier to read. So I started reading everything I could get my hands on and found uh, some techniques that I wanted to focus on. And so in the fall or winter of 2013, I started training seriously. I thought, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to make this exploration. And, you know, I I took a break from my normal meditation practice because I just wanted to dedicate my time to this. Mm -hmm. And... And then a few months after that, it was in January of 2014, I had my first out-of-body experience. And then I had a couple more. And then after that, that's when I had my shared death experience. And I think I was able to have that experience because I had been working on myself in this way so much and because I had the experience of feeling like I had left my physical body and gone to another realm of being. Can I ask a question? Sure. So that's like a holy cow moment, like that you first had your first out of body experience. Before you explain what a shared death experience is, what what was it like when you finally succeeded on your first out of body experience? The first one was really funny, and I don't think I've had another one like it since. But what happened was I was in my I'll call it my training area because they suggest that you don't do the practices in your own bed because we're conditioned to just fall asleep and right. bed. So yep. the training I was doing was called the interrupted sleep method where you get up in the middle of the night after a few sleep cycles or REM cycles. And I was laying on my couch in my living room, which was not my training area. Right. And doing the techniques of setting my intention to, to move beyond my body. And then I let myself drift back to sleep so that my body would fall asleep and something would alter in my consciousness and my consciousness got close to that borderline of sleep. And then suddenly the classical vibrational state started occurring. And a lot of people hear about this with their out-of-body experience, although it's not required to have the experience. It's just one of those signposts that many people experience. And this is a feeling of waves or vibrations moving up and down in the body. And it's not a physical thing. It's just a an energetic feeling that happens. And for some people it's mild for some people. For me, it was like being in the ocean swimming in some pretty big waves where you get tossed under the wave and you hear the rumble of the ocean when you're, it's like that, but through your whole body. So that started occurring and I knew what to do next. I needed to point my attention across the room. I actually pointed my attention towards the doorway 
as a way of sort of acting, making my uh, awareness or my intention act like a magnet to draw out my consciousness from the body. But what happened then was, instead of the graceful flying experience that I was expecting, I ended up sort of slumping out of my upper body down onto the floor and the feeling I had was like I was a giant worm sort of squirming out of my torso down onto the ground. And I had a vague perception of the room that my legs were still attached to my physical legs, if that's if that makes sense. My physical lower body was still connected, but the rest of me was just like this glob of consciousness stretching down. It was almost like I had to work my way away from my body like there was a force keeping me close to the body i had to kind of fight it and squirm away but it was so clear and i was so conscious it was it wasn't a dreamlike awareness it wasn't hazy it was crystal clear it was like like you and me talking right now that level of consciousness and my head and my shoulders my upper body didn't have the normal shape that my body does that we were there on the carpet a few feet away from the couch, and then but the rest of me was still stuck at the waist and below. That's wild. And it was a few moments, but then I, uh, it just I got excited, and excitement is sort of a force that the emotion of it kind of ends the experience. Mm-hmm. So I reconnected. I was in the body again. I opened my eyes in the next moment, and it was the only difference in. Awareness was that in one moment my physical eyes were closed and then they were open. That that was it. Consciousness was there was no break in between. But I knew I did it. (laughs) I did it, and I was so happy and so excited because this was what I was looking for when I had my heart surgery. When I did that experiment, going into the blacked out state. Have you had um, cool experiences of flying and all that? Oh yeah. So give us a good one before you get into your whatever (laughs) SDE is, if you don't mind, because this is fascinating. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. Yeah, I have I have two in mind, and I'll try and show them briefly. But they're they're so different, but they happened one after the other. So uh, a couple times later, a couple OBEs later, one that I had was I left my body and I was in the hallway in my apartment. And I moved through it, and I was just drawn to the kitchen. And there was a, I'll just use the word, a ritual cake. This is a a piece of pastry that's used in some Tibetan Buddhist ceremonies. And it was at the window. Mm -hmm. And in real, in physical life, there wasn't anything on the table by the window. But this was there. It was like an invitation to me. And a lot of OBE explorers uh, say that, what we experience in the out-of-body state is not entirely objective. There's a lot of subjectivity there. A lot of my own inner mind or past experience shows up. Okay. So this little cake was there by the window. And I don't know why, but I just took it as a sign. So I just dove out my window. And suddenly I was flying up above in the sky. And what was outside of my apartment in that experience was not what's there physically anymore. I found myself flying through the night sky and there was a forest underneath me. And the feeling was so exhilarating. Uh, years before, I had had a, a lucid dream. Mm-hmm. And I was I had flown in that dream. And the feeling was probably quite similar, if not the same. The sense of exhilaration and bliss and joy from the feeling state. And I wonder if the, the flying is representative of more of that sense of freedom and happiness. Or if they're, they're just two different things but they happen together at the same time but I felt so happy and blissful and I looked down and I saw houses and there was a cul-de-sac and there was a a rose garden in the middle of the cul-de-sac and I remember looking down and my vision could zoom in on these flowers and the color of red was so deep and vibrant and the whole scene was so alive and you remember the, the silver clouds in the night sky and the moonlight pervading And then I started to feel a loss of energy, and I sank down toward the ground. It was almost like a glider landing Mm -hmm. after a flight. And I landed at the uh, ground level of my apartment building and started walking up the back stairs. And even before I could come up the stairs, I 
my consciousness just transferred back into my body and I opened my eyes in that next moment and I knew it had happened again and it was just so glorious. Um, but the one, and so up to this point, I hadn't seen anybody else. I hadn't seen any other entities, but the one that happened after this really brought me into a, a more, well, it just opened my eyes even more and I'll describe it here that I left my body and Instead of being in my apartment, I was present in this park-like setting, and I was at the on a path, like a sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And I started walking along this path. And to my right, there was this hillside, a very shallow, a very gentle hillside. And I saw scores of children and teenagers just sitting there, and they were all stunned their faces were faces of shock or being stunned or dumbfounded no nobody was saying anything it was as if they were all lost they didn't know where they were mm-hmm. but they couldn't communicate so many pe- young people just sitting there and again same level of consciousness as you and I are having now it, like I was awake in this place and I walked further down just looking at these children and then I looked to my left and there were these shallow they're really quite large shallow swimming pools for lack of a better word mm-hmm. and in these pools some of the children there were some of these children standing there and there were some slightly older people like young adults who were taking care of them in a way they were bathing them or dunking them in the water it's as if there was some meaning to being in the water like it was a transitional activity or some it wasn't, I wouldn't say a blessing, but it was like a, it was a healing modality of some type okay. or something to help them be introduced into this environment. And the, this experience went on and on, but this was the core of it. And then I returned to my physical body and I realized, I think that I was in a transitional place for people who had died suddenly, especially young people. And I just had this knowing these people, these children and teenagers had just, and somehow had just died instantly and they were shocked. And here was a transition place for the other side. And I don't know if this place that I was in was an objective reality, but it could have been a place. And this was how my mind was translating what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. There were beings here who were in shock and there were other beings who were helping them. And there was an energetic process represented by water that they were using to help them move into this after death or, you know, after transition point. And that really, really touched me deeply. I think it was right after this when I had my, what I call a shared death experience, except I'm not sure if the, the normal definition is that, well, here's the normal example that's given is say someone is in a hospital room and their loved one is in the process of dying in the hospital bed. This is the example that I hear most frequently. Uh And as the person is dying, someone from the other side, maybe a family member who's deceased shows up in the room. And normally we hear about people in their hospital beds talking to, to nobody because they're having visions or they're, they're experiencing the spirits of the people who crossed over, but no one else in the room can see that. And they just think, well, they're losing it at this stage. <laughs> exactly. You know, but there are cases, so many cases now of people in the room who are healthy and not dying, who also see that person in the room. So that's one level of the shared death experience. Another one is as the person who is transitioning, as they're moving into the other side, and let's just use the word heaven, maybe they're transitioning toward heaven or heavenly realm that the person who's in the room with them, who's not dying, has an experience of leaving their own body or their consciousness transfers over into this heavenly place with their loved one who's dying. So they're both on the other side together. It's as if, you know, I I think of a parent who walks, you know, mother who walks her child to school all the way to the front door of the school. I think of that, that that's what's happening here, that the person who's alive and supporting their loved one who's dying, that somehow they're, they share that experience of going all that's the way amazing. to the edge. Raymond, to the, to the other side. Raymond Moody has a book on that, and I'm 
looking on my bookshelf to see if I can see what the name of it is, but I will certainly find it and connect it to this if somebody's interested in that, that shared death experience because there's a lot of lot of reports of that, and mm-hmm. it's really beautiful and really comforting. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember the interview you did with Penny Sartori. Yes. Yeah, I think she touches on the shared death experience as well as the the other things she talks about. Mm-hmm. She was the hospice uh, nurse who... Yeah was with so many people as they passed and oh talk about beautiful stories yeah that was a great interview yeah, that was amazing <laughs> anyways back yeah, to your so, yeah so de so, which is not typical you say right yeah so what happens the reason i would say mine is in typical is because these all happened at the same time that the person is dying and i don't know how many times something like that happens later sometime after the person has died but what happened for me was uh My college psychology professor, who was also a Jesuit priest, his name is Charlie, he, I got the news that he died of a, I believe it was a brain hemorrhage, and he died in his sleep. And I went to his memorial service a few days later, and about a week after that, and at this point, I had the confidence that you know there was his, he had continued on mm-hmm. because of my earlier OBE. But about a week after that, I had the strangest experience. And it just started like an out-of-body experience with the feeling of the vibrations in the middle of the night, the sensation of me being lifted from my body and flying through darkness. And then suddenly, I find myself in a theater-like setting you know, where there's uh, like musicals or acting or, you know, things like that. I'm in this really large theater and there was a sense that I was not really me, but I was, I was having someone else's experience. And there were other people sitting in the chairs watching the stage and on the stage, people were coming on from the sides and they had different costumes on or different clothing. And they were just, exclaiming what they had done in their life and exclaiming what they had accomplished or proclaiming, I should say, proclaiming. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of joy. And they would just sort of say something to represent who they had been. And then they would walk off stage. And the sense I had was that I had already been through that Part. I had already been on stage and said my piece, and I was just witnessing the other people who had transitioned around the same time I had. And then we all started walking out of the theater down this pathway. And as we walked, uh, and it's not that we all knew each other or we were in the same group, but we had all passed around the same time. And at this point, I realized I was being given the experience that my friend Charlie had when he transitioned I just knew it, that I was in his almost, well, figuratively, I was in his shoes Mm -hmm. walking this path on the other side. And we were walking down this path and people were stripping off their costumes and their clothes. And I was too. And I just raised my hands to the sky. And there was this tremendous sense of gratitude coming from within. Gratitude and joy for having had the opportunity to live a human life, to live in a human body and to make the mistakes I had made and to uh, show the love that I was able to show, to touch people the way I had. There's just a tremendous sense of gratitude and glory about it. And then a very profound level of exhaustion too. And, while I was in this experience, I make it to the end of the path. And at the end, there was an ocean. And what happened there at this point, I had even shed any sense of body of having a physical shape, even on the other side. And I was just this presence. And I t- threw myself into the waves in this dark Atlantic type ocean. And I sank down, down into the dark depths and this, is a, this was a positive experience, that this was a place of rest and recuperation. And time didn't matter, although it seemed like it would be a very, very long time before the next thing. But rather, I was going to these deep depths to have a beautiful, restful sleep. But not, very, not scary, not like you're not, going not in the Not scary okay. at all. Darkness, the way, you know, when someone is really tired 
and they want to go home and draw the blinds and make their room pitch black. Yes. And, you know, like me in the summertime, I want to turn the air conditioning all the way up so the room is really cold yeah. <laughs> and get under the warm sheets and stick out my leg if I get too hot. But right. it's really dark and yep. hi- hibernating, you know, yes, that's good which work. has a really positive quality to it. So so it was this experience. And at the end of reaching the, the depth of the ocean, I, I knew that I had been shown Charlie's experience on the other side. And it was it was a gift from him to me. And it was. If, I'm still trying to understand why he gave me that gift. The thing was, I had already started to develop a, an interest in other religions and other spiritualities in college while he was my professor. And so not only was he a psychologist, but he was a Jesuit, and we were friends. Uh, he wasn't just my teacher. We were friends. We'd have coffee and meals together and do things together. And our relationship soured a little bit while he was alive and we hadn't been in touch for a couple of years before he died because every time we met the last few times there was the conversation always steered to why are you not a practicing Catholic anymore? Yeah. Right. Make some sort of comment that I knew he was trying to be respectful to me. He would say, well, I, I guess you're a, you're a seeker. You're, you're, a, you're searching. You're not just a, person who's going to accept the tradition he or she has been given, but you have to find out on your own. But there was also that slant of eventually you'll figure out and you'll come back. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And you'll come back. And to me, you know, I'm a stubborn guy. (laughs) I'm pretty hard headed and I probably have a, you know, a lot of pride to deal with. And I had too much pride and I just, I felt insulted. I thought, you know, I I do need to find out for myself. And what I find out at the end might not bring me back. It might not be the thing for me. And I just had to sort of say goodbye to him for a while because it took so much energy and also some self-confidence for me that here's this, not only was he a friend, but he's an authority figure. Right. And so his opinion really mattered a lot and maybe too much because I had to break off our relationship um, in order to keep going full strength into my own path. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all stubborn to a sense with what we believe, <laughs> and I'm sure he was too. I mean, he he knew his way and, and the Catholic way and felt very strongly about that. That's just, I think, part of being human. But yeah. all was not lost if he showed you that experience. Let me ask you, Sean, was that experience, do you remember it like a dream or do you remember it like something that, had just happened and you can recall it or is it even more vivid than that when you think of the memories of not only the SDE but the out-of-body experiences? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that's what marks the the qualities, at least for me, about what an OBE is. I remember all these experiences the same way I remember going to the office yesterday. Um, whereas dreams, most of the time after you know, after a few minutes, I forget them, or after a few days, I, I forget them. Um, you know, dreams just have that ability to fade out and disappear from memory, especially awake, conscious memory. You know, a lot of people can remember their dreams early in the morning if they move back into the physical position they were in in bed. Yeah. That helps them with dream recall. Cool. But after that, when you get out of bed and start going about your day, the dreams just fade out unless you get into the practice of dream journaling and that's actually helpful for practice for out-of-body experiences too because it trains your memory and your consciousness to to want to remember these things more deeply Hmm. however the way i remember my out-of-body experiences is distinctly different from my ability to remember normal dreams of the night yeah i asked that because um you've heard some of the interviews i've done but the people that i've interviewed that have had near-death experiences it's the same thing even if they had them when they were eight years old they can recall them like it was just yesterday Mm -hmm. so not even close to being a dream even more real than the memory from yesterday were these experiences so then what happened because now you're moving from that onto What's the the oh, lead beat to telekinesis? Because I watched your video and I'm like, oh my gosh! Like, 
yeah, you're opening up a whole new world to me. But, sure. but I, I know, like, we hear it so much about things like the law of attraction and visualization and, and creating, you know, starting with your mind and your feelings. And, you know, I am a believer that somehow things happen and, and we bring things to us. But in your video, like, you're making stuff move with your mind and I'm like, Oh my. So what, what was the leap now from going from shared death experience out of body experience to telekinesis? Cause it was, yeah. it was wild stuff. <laughs> well, the first leap, and I, this is probably the most important leap for me for my own journey was the experience of self empowerment that I got from being able to, experience the non-physical realms to Mm -hmm. first figure out that we don't die, that we do continue and that there's so much more to the story of reality than any one tradition can capture or hold. Right. So I suddenly gained this newfound freedom to explore more because until then, you know, I was a really serious student of the tradition I was practicing in this Buddhist tradition, Mm -hmm. but I also felt held in or boxed in and, Every tradition tends to say, well, these kinds of experiences are okay. And these others, they're really just distractions or they're not real or they'll take you off the path. But at this point, I, I knew, wow, there, there is eternity. There's so much more time and more to the story than I, than I know. But I want to have some fun now. I've gone a distance with my mind and I want to explore some more. I want to see what else is possible so that was the first thing is feeling free to find out for myself even more and not feeling boxed in by anybody else's or any other traditions, rules or, or warnings or, you know, fear language, things like that. I just wanted to go further. Yes. The other driver that, that pushed me on was that I found out really quickly that when you tell someone that you've left your body, <laughs> the the chances are 80% that they're not going to know what to say to you. In 80? I think it's higher than that. <laughs> yeah, I just look at you that. stunned like, okay. Yeah. There's that same stunned look people tend to have. I know how to spot it right away now that they're just, they're trying so hard either not to laugh or to say, I don't know what you're talking about or are you serious? Yeah, there's you know, one eye, you- eyebrow <laughs> up like, and the other one down like, all right, right. yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of sad Good for me for because all, all I want to do is get this message out, the same message you're trying to get out, sure. that we don't die and yeah, 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 look yeah. what we're capable of. And, and uh, you know, everyone is experiencing and learning at their own speed and they can only take what they can take from their own experience. And this right. is still today a little bit fringe stuff that we're involved with. But I think, of course, because of technology, people are learning about it more and more. But it has to come from them. They want to know about this, but they, they have to want it. And we can never forget yeah. years ago, people thought the earth was flat. Right. I mean, and just called anybody that believed otherwise just insane. And I'm actually listening to a CD on the Wright brothers who uh, invented the first flying machine that could turn, go up and down and had pitch and all these things. And I don't know, I didn't know much about them, but when I found out that the whole world or, you know, whoever was listening was laughing at them and mocking them. I mean, there was no agreement at all, mm-hmm. at all. So I'm sure people had looked at them with funny looks like, you know, they'd travel to Kitty Hawk every year and, and try this flying machine. Like, like they were crazy. And I mm-hmm. mean, a lot of people out there were nuts. And here I was flying last night back home from California with a whole bunch of other people. And I'm thinking it's because of those two brothers not giving up on something that they saw in their minds that now like so much in life is possible because of air travel. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, we're the pioneers. There's just many of us in, in that we're not just these physical bodies. So mm-hmm. that's my little uh, commercial break for the Wright brothers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like that you said that part that, you know, people were laughing at them because, oh, big time. you know, there's one of those sayings that you come across on Facebook or their social media that uh, when you tell people you're, dreams or your aspirations if they're not laughing at you you're not dreaming big enough oh i like that that's <laughs> so good i hold on tightly to that one these days that yeah people who've changed the world or changed themselves deeply had to go beyond what people were willing to accept i mean that's the definition of change right you know 
Right. So, so going on for why I went towards telekinesis, having felt empowered and wanting to explore further, and also finding there's a lot of resistance from people toward believing or accepting that there's more to to us than the physical. I came across some videos on, on YouTube of people doing telekinesis, so moving objects at a distance, moving objects with their mind or, or with their energy. And I thought, I could learn how to do that. <laughs> I've already learned so much and just figured it out on my own or getting guidance from books or, or MP3s, whatever. I thought, if I can do this, I won't have to tell people about out-of-body experiences because that I can't prove. Right. It's so subjective. But this, I could show someone with their own eyes in, in the middle of daytime, right before their eyes, I could show them, I am not just a physical being and I can affect the physical world from a distance. That so that cool. shows that there's something non-physical about us. Yeah. And maybe or maybe not, it's some sort of energy, but it's definitely based in intention the intention of the mind, which explains so much about when we move our physical body, intention is there. When babies are learning how to move their bodies, it's not just a straight, you know, they don't automatically know how to move their arms and legs. There has to be that intention, but the trial and error, if you watch a baby move her little hands and arms, it's it's really like a lot of trial and error. I mean, that's just how it looks like to me. I know a physician, biologist would have a different explanation. But then when we do consciousness exploration, whether it's having lucid dreaming or out-of-body experiences or prayer or group prayer or meditation, all of those are based in intention as well. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, it's still all within the physical body. So if we could extend our intention out beyond the borderlines of our skin, that would show that we're not just this physical body, that we're so much more and it would give a lot of credence to the this notion out there that we're never in our physical body anyway i mean that's one of the ideas that's that people are talking about that we just when we're awake and conscious we just happen to be centered within our physical body but that's not it's not as if we're stuck there it's just where we with our subconscious intention we put our mind there and then when we dream or have an out-of-body experience our intention shifts our focus to be aware of some other possibility of existence. So, so well, I'm, this is getting too confusing. Well, it's funny. I was just, <laughs> when you were talking about, when I was talking about, you know, one eyebrow going up, I just did that, like, what? We are never in a physical body anyways. Like, what the heck is he talking about? Yeah. And then, it, but it's funny because it's, that's, Usually any of us explorers, it's like you start with that and then you want to listen for more, you know, yeah. like, okay. Well, it's, you know, for example, with, so I decided to train in telekinesis and a big aspect of my training was learning how to really put my mind on that object. So most of the time I worked with a folded piece of tin foil or paper that was balanced on a needle and under a glass container. That way I knew the wind wasn't blowing. What'd you have the needle sticking into? I was trying to figure that out. Was that an eraser or something? Yeah, in some of the videos it's an eraser, in some it's a block of wax, in another okay. one it's it's a cork. Okay, yeah. I was just wondering. And again yeah. for our fabulous listener, his video is on his website mindpossible.com. And it's a crazy cool video. But anyways, let's, let's talk more. Okay. Yeah. So the, so one of the important steps is learning how to extend our mind onto that object and develop a relationship with it. Because normally when we look at things or objects, it, we treat them like they're separate from us. Right. But at the oh, same yeah. time, for our mind to be able to perceive it, at some point there has to be a sense of union. Even if we're talking about the rods and cones and the eyes taking in the light and sending the signal to the back of the brain, at a certain point, there's a sense of non-separation between that object and us. But, but our sense of self creates a separation. Like, that thing is that, and I'm me, and we're separate. So we have, for telekinesis, at least in the training that I've done, there has to be a sense of unity again. So extending the mind out toward that object and looking at the texture and the wrinkles and the folds and imagining what it smells like or what it tastes like or what it, how heavy it is or how light it is, developing the familiarity with it. Even if you're just pretending or imagining, 
it's this intention to reunite with the, the world out there. And then after developing that sense of familiarity, just having the quiet intention that that object will move the same way you might reach for your cup of coffee. It's that intention, that first intention that sends your arm in that direction. But instead of needing to extend your arm toward that object, that object moves because it's you. It moves the same way you would move your hand because intention is that, that force. And it's wow. a force of our non-physical consciousness. It's not, it's not like I have a, a nerve ending coming out of my eye socket, you know, or, or something physical coming from me to that object. It's this invisible, non-physical intention. And in a lot of my videos, you'll see my hands on the glass or away from the glass. And it, people might think, oh, he's sending chi or prana or energy from his hands on the object. And the truth is, I just have my hands there just in case that's what happened. But I never really felt a lot coming from my hands. It wasn't about sending energy out for me. But for a lot of people, the way they develop their practice, that's, that's it for them. But it wasn't for me. That, that even in and of itself is cool because us being able to do even that or even thinking of Reiki and things like that, just the fact that we can <laughs> focus and have energy coming from our hands, you know, and for people to say, oh, well, that's just that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've had people, um, some of the medium stuff that I've done oh, you're just reading someone's mind. It's like, well, isn't that miraculous too? <laughs> isn't chi energy miraculous too? Like, like, listen to what we're saying. So I anyways, know. I interrupted you. Go well, ahead. That's okay. I mean, and that brings up something too, that, that why do, for people who have a hard time with this, they, they probably have a cell phone in their pocket or in their purse that right. they can use to call someone across the planet. And there's no wires on that cell phone. It's non-physical no. communication, but they have no problem believing that. But this, this is impossible, right? Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, for me, I think maybe hands or or an object or, you know, for some people in a period of time, it may have been a magic wand. I think these are all tools or rituals that help strengthen the force of our intention. They help gather our concentration or intention or a sense of energy. Mm-hmm. And maybe energy and intention are the exact same thing. See, I think this is still such new territory. And we have to uh, allow past information or older traditions to come to terms with what's being discovered today and what, with what science is discovering too. Right. For example, with Kirlian photography and other more modern forms of photography that can capture the energetic glow or that aura from plants and animals and, and people. Um, Pretty cool. So, so we're at that point where we have to, well, we all start to develop a common language. Right. So I thought, you know, if I could put this on video or show people face to face that they can just use their intention. And that means that their mind is not only inside the body, but it's outside the body that might help them understand that, Maybe that's the part of the body that's that always exists and that will continue even when the physical body has stopped breathing and when the pulse has stopped and the physical body has deteriorated. That non-physical part, it's not based on blood and bones. It's something else. And that part continues. Right. So how did, it, how did it go, this experiment with your folded <laughs> piece of tinfoil under the glass on a pin uh, sticking it to... <laughs> Something. Well, it took me, I would say, at least two and a half months. I, I started logging my progress in the beginning. Every time I would sit down and stare at this piece of tinfoil, I'd, I'd write it down in a little notebook. But pretty soon, I, I just gave that up because I started getting frustrated right at the beginning. I thought, how many times am I going to have to do this? Right. And and it was more than I was hoping for. Um, but it wasn't every day either. I think in my video, I make it sound like I was sitting there for hours every day, and that's not the case. It was really a few times a week, sometimes for 20 minutes, sometimes for a whole hour, just sitting there. And I was accustomed to meditating for long periods of time anyway, so it really wasn't an issue. It was more about 
time management, but I just sit there and practice putting my mind on this object and feeling united with it and then exercising my intention and then knowing what to do with my thinking ego mind. Um, Which is screaming, this is ridiculous, you're not going to make it move. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I know how that ego mind works, (laughs) little devil. The doubt, or maybe I'd start imagining, what if I could make it move? And I'd imagine telling people and people believing it and cheering me on, which is the exact opposite of the case. Right. So either, you know, that hope and fear, all of that jumping up in my mind. And I developed a technique that I call the refrigerator and I found it worked so well that when my what thinking mind, yeah, when, when my thinking mind got overly involved and it was sort of getting in the way of my silent intention, I would imagine going to my kitchen and opening the refrigerator door and trying to remember what's inside my refrigerator. Like, do I, how much milk do I have and where are the eggs and where did I put the vegetables and what's in there? And I, I realized that doing that sends my thinking mind somewhere else it's like throwing a stick in a field and and the dog chases after it oh that's a great sean yeah i love that i I think that technique might be able to help people in different ways with other practices yeah that's awesome yeah it's it's a way to divide the mind so I, i realized that for this there's so many ways to describe the mind but there's really the intention mind which is quite silent and then there's the thinking mind and if we divide the two, we could actually make them operate diff- in two different ways and send one away. And so if you send the thinking mind away on a task and to keep your intention on the object, then the object starts to receive the intention more clearly or more purely. It's like purifying the signal of the intention Love by it. sending away the distraction of the doubt and the fear and the hope and all of that. Mm-hmm. So that was a technique that I developed along the way. And after two and a half months, it started to wiggle just a tiny little bit. I call it micro-movements, just this tiny, tiny little movement. And it's, I wasn't even sure if I was really seeing it, but it was something like a little quake. Yes. The object. And then I really used the refrigerator method and other techniques with breathing also. And one day, and this the day it happened... I had set up my object under the glass on a nightstand by by the bed. And I'm sitting there on the bed, and my wife was laying in bed asleep. And she just got used to it because I was doing this at yeah, all yeah. nights and during the day. She, she was, Sean's just doing his thing. You, you go, his thing. go with the glass and the foil. Yeah, I love you anyways. Just, just <laughs> exactly. do what you need to do. Yeah, yeah she was so supportive. And, and this night, it just started turning. And it, it's not like it's flickered or anything. It just went from nothing to suddenly turning, like somebody turned on the clock. Wow. The hands of the clock just started moving. It just started turning that way. And I looked at it for a few moments, and I was just smiling. And then I turned around and, you know, I had to wake up my wife, and, and she was just cheering me on, and I knew that I could do it. The thing that kills me, though, is... Uh, eventually I suggested that she try it and she sat down and on her first try, she got it to happen. And I'm no kidding. No. And since then I've shown maybe about 10 people or maybe eight people face to face. So, you know, I've invited some friends over to my house to look at it and to try it out. And always within an hour, they're doing it. And so I go, what is that? <laughs> so it's like I, I had to work for months, and then here they are, and they get they get it to happen in under an hour, which I'm I'm happy for them, but I'm sort of like, what? Do you I'm know what happy. that reminds me of? And you might even use this is people who would do marathon running, like no one, and I don't know the guy's name or anything, but no one had ever run a four minute mile ever. It just like couldn't be done. And then at one time somebody did it they ran a four minute mile Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden everybody be able was able to do it and even run faster so by you letting people know that it's possible it was like oh okay it's possible they just went ahead and did it but had you asked them to do it the first time and you hadn't even had done it like i I bet you they couldn't do it you know Mm -hmm. what i mean but you gave their subconscious mind the go ahead like oh this is possible so like okay well if it's possible i'll just do it 
So that's that's what's coming to mind there for me. Yeah, I love that example. I <clears throat> I heard that a long time ago. At a, <clears throat> excuse me, at a sales training meeting, <laughs> I should use that for sales training. But yeah. yeah, that idea that when you watch someone accomplish something that everyone thought was impossible, suddenly other people are even breaking that record. Right. So which that's is so great. kudos to you. So without you doing what you're doing, you know, they couldn't show off and do better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, well, and I think the important thing there is it shows the power of belief systems. Right. That a belief system in a way is, it's a box of intention that sets the limit of your ability. So if you believe it's impossible, it is impossible for you. Right. And I think that, you know, it's not just about telekinesis now. It's about if you think you can't lose a dream, you won't. If you think you can't leave your body, you can't. If you think you can't meditate, I hear that all the time with my meditation students. When I they just first can't do it. it. I can't do it. No, it's too hard. My mind doesn't do that. Too it's too hard. Yeah. And that is the maybe one of the most difficult obstacles to work on when helping someone who wants to learn, but they inherently believe that they can't. Right, right. There has to be a leap of faith. And these days, leaps of faith are hard to come by because modern society functions on, well, I'm going to buy a product. And if I don't like it, there's a there's a warranty or there's a return policy. You know, that's just how we think a lot of the time. But with consciousness exploration, there's no return policy there's no. no guarantee. There's no promise. It's just about how daring or or what people are willing to risk to give it a shot, you know, go for it. And if some little voice inside a person says, I think this is really true, then they have to nurture that voice and go for it and just experiment for as long as it takes. Sean, do you think that your quality of life is different because you've witnessed, I call these the miraculous, like you've you've really witnessed out-of-body experiences, you've witnessed shared death experience, you've witnessed now moving the piece of tinfoil. Like, what does it make available in your life going forward as a human? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, the, the fear of death is gone. Yay, um, that's good. And not that I'm looking forward to it. No, <laughs> who is? No, no, no. And we don't want pain, certainly. <laughs> yeah. No. But uh, I just feel a lot more relaxed and I think I'd, I'd say happy in an overall sense. I'm, I'm happier. But I also feel a greater sense of responsibility toward my own life and other people now. Because even though previously with my Buddhist training, I'd learned about karma and things like that, I knew it was important to be responsible for how I treated people and how I treated myself. Now I really have evidence to show that it's so important because we do continue and how I experience myself on the other side is really heavily uh, affected by my state of mind during my waking life that any anger or bitterness that I harbor now I know it's going to affect me later and it's going to affect me in my dreams and my out-of-body state and it'll most definitely affect my experience when I finally shed this physical body so and it, by no means, I mean, I'll just say I have so much work to do personally. And um, so when I get angry at someone or if I have expectations or I'm assuming the worst about a person, I have to remind myself that I'm probably wrong and that I'm just I need to guard my negativity because it really does make a big difference. So I'm happy, but I feel such a deeper sense of responsibility but at the same time, that makes me even happier because I have more a sense of meaning for my life. That I'm not just here to – I wasn't born accidentally. I'm not here for a paycheck. Right. I'm here to learn how to love more, learn to love myself and love other people and forgive or how to ask for forgiveness and develop you know, humility, but a healthy sense of humility um, and to take chances that at the same time, so much of life remains the same. I wish I could use telekinesis for work or, or to do, you know, but all the same challenges apply with making a living or right. being in a relationship or dealing with traffic every day. None of that changes. And I, I wish it would, but, um, but it doesn't. And I guess those are the parts where I get to learn more and learn to love more and be more accepting and be more patient. So it just makes me realize how much life is a great opportunity to to learn 
Yeah. And if anything is, isn't going right or is, there's pain or depression or dissatisfaction happening, I know it's not going to last. And eternity is a long time, and this physical life is really short. So, True. So it, it's not going to last either, which helps me with, with patience just to outlast it. But I have so much personal work to do, but now I have an even bigger reason and bigger faith that, that I can do it, and that, I, that I should do it. And it's great because it comes from me. It, it's not that there's a tradition or religion anymore telling me that I need to do this or why I need to be a certain way. In fact, I, I have a hard time identifying as any particular tradition or, or religion anymore. You know, I love Christianity. I, I love Buddhism. But it's getting harder and harder to put myself in a box and say I'm a Buddhist or anything like that. I'm just alive. I'm just the conscious being and I have a temporary identity here, and that'll be gone after a while, and I'll still be consciousness. Yeah, and we all really, as our souls on this planet, can look for our own spirituality. Mm-hmm. And 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 I always say, it, whether you're reading a good book, whether you're listening to this show, whether you're going to some seminar, whether you're going into your church, take what works for you and resonates with you and use it. Mm-hmm. Nobody's forcing you to use all the other stuff, but if something empowers you, that's the thing to use. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, our time's going by real fast here, mm-hmm. and I don't yeah. want it to end, but mm-hmm. I've got a couple of things to say, and then I want to find out more about how people can find out about you. And, like, you have telekinesis training, which I'm like, oh, that is so cool. And it's free, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. That's your cell phone saying your time's up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so if people go to my website, mindpossible.com, there's a link there where you can, there are 14 tracks that you can listen to, and you can do it all in one evening. And then if you watch the videos on that website too, it'll, I think just by seeing it over and over again, it starts to break a person's own belief system and helps them believe that this is possible. And so they can learn for free. And, uh, you know, my only goal with this is to empower people or, or make it a place for people to play and explore and help them realize that we don't die. Oh, that I love it. Continues. Yeah. yeah. One thing I just I wrote down um, while you were talking is I had interviewed a medium. Her name is Suzanne Wilson a few episodes ago. And she said that our deceased loved ones in the hereafter or heaven actually have to go somewhere she called it i think she called it the hall of knowledge to learn how to be able to manipulate uh the physical world so what you're doing with telekinesis i had this vision of our like so many people like want a sign that their loved one is still around and suzanne's saying like you have actually have to go learn how to do it and i think it's i think we're still talking about telekinesis like how can you make a butterfly appear how can you make the television flick on and off you know how can you implant uh, things into people's minds and pictures and thoughts and um, a lot of people find pennies or dimes on the ground like how can you manipulate like reality. So I, I'm actually thinking you're teaching telekinesis from this side and, uh, you know, they, our loved ones get to learn it somewhere else, but we're talking about the same thing. Doesn't that awesome. sound cool? It's awesome. And you're reminding me of a book called Testimony of Light by Helen Greaves. And Helen Greaves and her friend, while they were both alive, trained to communicate telepathically. And they oh, got really good cool. at it. And when, when I don't remember if it's Helen that died or her friend that died, but when one of them died, they maintained their communication. And that's what this book, Testimony of Light, is based on, is the after-death communication that they had learned to do while they were both alive. So I think you're right on with telekinesis, that if you want to be able to move things or touch people when you're in the afterlife state or after death state, maybe learn how to do it now. And you'll remember that when you cross over and you'll be two steps ahead of the game. <laughs> oh, it's so, so cool. And as a gift to our listeners, um, in my book called We Don't Die, I talk about what's called remote viewing. And it, it is a practice similar but different. But I mean that you can actually learn to see what's on the coffee table of your friend who's in Australia when you're in the United States. I mean, it's, it's really, really a cool 
practice to learn and even some of these uh, communications between people, it, it, it's all connected. So I give some tools how to do that. And of course, Sean gives some tools at his website. But if you go to we don't die radio.com, I have a little button that a little place that says, uh, join our insiders club. Well, what that means is if you click on that, um, I will give you a free PDF file of my book. And I don't remember what page it's on. You just type in remote viewing to search and, and just start reading some of that because it talks about the power of prayer. It talks about just how our minds can really impact things and pick up things. So I think it's all in the same realm. Um, it, it's just, this is just a little bit different about actually sending it out and making things making things happen. Sean, you're the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so happy we did this. I have so much gratitude to you. Yeah. You. Any closing words or anything you need to say that you forgot to say or I didn't ask you and oh my gosh, is there still time to say? And if not, that's fine too. Oh, I guess I would just encourage people to go for it. You know, just go for it. Set yourself free and explore in whatever way suits you. But it's it's all possible. You just have to believe that you can do it, and you can if you just put in the time. In whatever realm it is, you can do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, I'm happy. <laughs> so also, uh, for our listener, if you go to wedontdieradio.com and click on episode 91, that's the episode for Sean McNamara. So all the things that he talked about, um, his website and even some of the other people that we've, we've spoken about, um, you can just click on the links and it'll send you right there. So you can watch his video and, um, and I will have, by the time I air this, find out Helen Greaves and all that stuff. So we, we have a link for all of that. Um, so in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain. I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio. I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. And I went to Sean's YouTube page and I found a quote that he has that is awesome. And it is, we are capable of so much more than we believe. Overcome your self-doubt set your intention, and hold steady. Reality reveals itself to those who dare to look. So again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.